0: Welcome to episode 503 with my guest, Dr. Jill Stoddard. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all our bullshit. I'm trying to shorten that, that little intro. Uh, I am not a therapist, which should be obvious 15 seconds in to listening to this podcast. I am a former stand-up comedian and TV host and all-around jackass. But I do have mental struggles, and I feel like, uh, you know, that's worth chipping in. And I'm, I'm passionate about it. I don't know why I'm justifying this like you are ready to turn the podcast off. I always imagine people, whatever the worst is that they could think of me in any given moment, that's the defensive place that I come from. <laughs> uh, sir, would you uh, care for another drink? Listen, I have every right to be on this planet as you do. I take it that means no? That's correct. I want to read a couple surveys before we get to the uh, interview with uh, Dr. Stoddard. If you haven't filled out the surveys, by the way, uh, go to our website, metalpod.com. There's about a dozen different surveys you can, you can fill out, and they're a big part of the podcast. and there are other ways you can support the podcast as well. You can uh, subscribe, whatever your iTunes uh, player, iTunes, your your podcast player is, whether it's Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play or whatever. I think they're just continuing Google Play. Oh, this is turning into a... This is... this. Is, I have dug a rabbit hole and I am climbing into it. You can also make some... Uh, Donations either through PayPal or Patreon, and that uh, is much needed, much needed, especially the uh, the monthly uh, Patreon. You can do it for as little as a dollar, a dollar a month. And all those links are on the website. All right. This is from the struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, watermelon. and about her depression, she writes, Depression is the greatest acting teacher in the world. I can smile through anything, even though I just want the ground to open up and swallow me whole. Boy, that one hit me like an 18-wheeler. Oh my God, the plastering of the face at a social event when you're depressed. It's like bench pressing 500 pounds. About her anxiety, I wish I had the key to my brain so I could turn it off. And then about experiencing racial or cultural bias, she, she writes, there's no way you can afford that car. That has to be such a humiliating feeling when you're going to buy something and somebody, somebody looks at you as if this is out of your price range, just based on what you look like. This is a same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself quiet, cool girl about her depression. She writes, being willing to let everything in my life fall apart if it means I can just stay in bed today. Oh my God, a thousand times yes. A thousand times yes. About her alcoholism and drug addiction. Manipulating my psychiatrist into giving me a prescription, taking it all in less than a week, feeling such bliss, then suffering for three weeks until I can justify asking for another prescription. About her compulsive eating, I ran out of sedatives, but this bag of mini powdered donuts might put me out. And then a snapshot from her life, a couple of months after what I brushed, brushed off as a slight increase in my, quote, frantic energy. I've lost 10 pounds and I'm unable to work due to panic attacks. I'm wearing my second unnecessary heart monitor because they told me I'm healthy and the first one didn't pick up anything scary. But I feel like I'm dying and can't believe the doctors. I really, really urge you to do something about your addiction because making any progress with that standing in front of you is next to impossible if not impossible that has to be has to be dealt with and what's amazing is once you start to deal with with that so many other things become easier in your life other things fall into place but untreated addictions just they're it's like a barnacle that attaches itself to everything in your life and makes it makes it worse uh, and speaking of uh, addiction, I got a. Uh, this was filled out via the survey, Struggle in the Senses, filled out by a woman who calls herself Britta. And she had some questions about um, going to a support group where they talk about God or, or higher power. And like many people who go there, they bristle at people talking about God. And when I first started going to support groups, I was one of those people. I was raised Catholic, I have nothing against people who get something out of Catholicism, but it never moved me. I found it church to be boring. Uh, I saw a lot of racism at my parish and so I thought that that was the representation of God and I and I felt like all this terrible shit happens in the universe, you know, is is, is that God? And the answer to that is, I don't know. And here's what I started off with. I knew that I wasn't God. I knew that I was trying to control things in my life that I could not control. And I met a group of people who seemed to believe in something other than themselves. It was different for each person. For some people, you know, their higher power was nature. For other people, it was the support group itself. For some people, it was the energy of love. Uh, and so I started out believing that they believed and it was working for them. And I fed off of their energy because I could see that they had joy in their lives, that their lives were working and not that they didn't have struggle or pain or setbacks or confusion, but their lives were so, so much better than they had been before. And one day I was sitting in my living room and i've been going to the support group for about 2 or 3 months and suddenly i realized the obsession to drink and do drugs was gone and i couldn't explain it and i had been doing what these people had suggested and that's when i came to believe that there was something in the universe outside of myself not a person you know something something larger than me there was an energy that I was tapping into. And that, I don't, I, I don't even, maybe there's not something. Maybe there isn't some benevolent force in the universe. But living my life and letting go of the things I can't control and believing that they're under the, the domain of some larger power helps me. It helps me just let the fuck go to future less. You know, I like the 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 term spirituality, although I think it's often misused. You know. Organized religion has done so much damage to the idea of spirituality. Spirituality to me has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with tradition. It has nothing to do with a hierarchical uh organization. Uh I believe that there can be more spirituality in somebody returning their shopping cart in a grocery store parking lot than there can be in some churches. To me, spirituality is about finding a way to keep my spirit up. You know, when I had to ask for help, I was so close to killing myself. My spirit was dead. And the reason I can... I can see now that it was dead, was I didn't care about anything other than me. If it was convenient, I could care about something other than me, but I was completely self-obsessed. I was controlling. I was filled with fear and anger and resentment. My ethics were sketchy at best. I was not a very helpful person. I could be if it were convenient, especially if people were looking on. And so as I Started to get help, and these people started to show me how they were living ethical, honest lives. My spirit began to lift, and I began to trust that you know what, things are going to work out the way they're going to work out, and I'll figure it out. Not that I can't have goals for the future or make plans, but I'm not going to sit and obsess about it, and I'm going to try to do the right thing more often. I'm going to try to be helpful. I'm going to try to get out of myself because I think about myself too much. And as I started doing these things, I started to feel peace. And that to me is what spirituality, higher power, the universe, whatever you want to call it. That's how it works for me. So I wouldn't I wouldn't get hung up on labels. Just look for the love, man. Look for the love and the joy. Oh, there's a great documentary right now on HBO called The Vow. Holy shit, it's so good. And it's about a a, a cult. And it's so interesting when a cult in the beginning helps people and that lures them in. But then you get, begin to see the the seamy, dark side to it and the I just find cult leaders so fascinating because how, how conscious are they of the evil that they are doing? Are they kidding themselves? I've got to believe on, on some level they're completely aware of what they're doing. But it, it just it boggles my mind, the bullshit that people will fall for. And people probably feel that way about the support group that I go to, but there's no hierarchy at the support group that I go to. Nobody's making any money off it. Nobody's even telling you what to do. People suggest things, and that's it. That, to me, is beautiful. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a a guy who calls himself Mr. What Not To Do and about his depression. He writes, it feels like a numb, dull sky where you see the storm in the distance. It might be here in 20 minutes or a couple of weeks. You don't know, but you forgot your umbrella. Oh, God, is that a good one. Oh, thank you for that one. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Check it out. If you've never done online therapy, it's so simple. It's affordable. They have great therapists uh, that they can match you up with. And uh, just go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire. And make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then, uh, as I said, just fill out a questionnaire. And then if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling. See if online counseling is your thing. And if you are not over 18 or not 18 or over, they'll direct you, uh, if you're between 13 and 17, to teencounseling.com. Check it out. And then finally, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey filled out by (laughs) a gender person who calls themselves that jar of pickles that's been in the fridge since 2017. Apparently, you have looked inside my fridge. Uh, about their depression. The blood of life has coagulated. That's such a good one. About their OCD. If I don't think about the bad things, then the bad things will attack my friends. About their PTSD. It's like being in an abusive relationship with my senses. These are so good. About being a sex crime victim. Being forced to wear a badge that tells the world that you're worthless. And about their love addiction. Please love me so I don't have to.
1: Every little thing feels like the end of the world. that shame in order to feel the pleasure.
0: And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry.
1: We need to be with people. I grab them by their throats and let them down to the floor and watch the breath leave their bodies. Well, listen, people- thanks for coming in.
0: <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Jill Stoddard, uh, who's written a great book called Be Mighty. And the the title after... The colon is A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. Uh, first of all, thanks for making the schlep to uh, to come here and, and talk about such important topics, anxiety, worry, and and, and stress. They're, they're talk about how somebody who is anxious, worried, and stressed might not even realize it.
1: Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's mm-hmm. my pleasure to be here. Um, and I joke that you know the book is for women with anxiety, worry, and stress, which means it's for women, right? <laughs> and lots of people have said, "Well, it's for women," but really, anyone can benefit from this book. And I think right now, more than ever, who isn't struggling with some level of anxiety, worry, and stress, right? So, and and, and it's
0: sorry to cut you off. No, go for it. But I think one of the things, and maybe you could help me out here in, in explaining it, is sometimes the absence of something to point to, the absence of. A crisis. They're just that low kind of boil in the background that we're waiting for the shoe to drop.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of the hallmark of generalized anxiety is even when things are going well, there's that constant, like, well, if it's good, that means something bad has to be about to happen. And I've had a number of clients, you know, as a psychologist and a clinician, I've had a number of clients who. You know, we'll come in in their thirties or forties. And when I ask about when did this start, there's some precipitating event that got them to come into therapy. But when they really think about it, it's like, well, actually, now that I, now that I really think about it, I've been struggling with this since I was a kid. You know, I used to worry about getting my homework done or, you know, whatever the case may be. And at that time, they weren't aware to speak to your question. They're not aware of it because it's just what's normal for them. Right. Right. If this is something you've struggled with your whole life, then you may not know that it's any different from what other people are struggling with.
0: A lot of times when you, when you talk to somebody after, let's say, they've started taking meds or started meditating, a- and all of a sudden they feel the opposite of what they felt. They suddenly mm. realize it was the void of, yeah. of something positive that yeah. is clawing at you, is itching at you, that's telling you to get up at 2 in the morning and eat ice cream or to you know watch Netflix for 14 hours.
1: Right. Absolutely. And and those behaviors can be a way to understand, am I struggling with something, whether it's anxiety or a mood issue or something else? Like, am I noticing that I have a lot of go to strategies to try to escape mm-hmm. some type of discomfort, some some inner state that I don't want to feel? Mm-hmm. And it, even the person who's like, I'm air quoting that you can't see, but, you know, like high functioning. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a workaholic who is busy, 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 because that's a form of distraction. Mm -hmm. And you know whether you're doing that if in the downtime, and now's probably a good time to notice this, in the downtime, are you really struggling when you're just sitting with yourself and your own mind?
0: I have a friend who is, uh, in my opinion, terrified of stillness. He is always... Doing a hundred different things. If you know, if we're planning, uh, you know, maybe a, a guy's weekend of skiing or something, he has to make it the craziest and the most involved. And and I'm just always like, what? Why does everything have to be so complicated and so mapped out? Uh, it is,
1: has a function.
0: Talk about uh, numbness. One of the things that drives me crazy is when somebody asks me how I'm doing it, I don't fucking know.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, numbness is thought of in a couple different ways. You know, we see numbness with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. We see numbness with depression. We see numbness sometimes as a result of medication. Um, and one thought is that numbness is like a subconscious avoidance strategy. So not that you're consciously saying, I don't like the way I feel, so I'm gonna go numb, right? It's not something you choose to do, but our bodies and our brains are so talented at protecting us, Mm -hmm. you know, that numbness can be almost like, sort of like a form of dissociation like one of the brain's many ways of basically shutting down mm-hmm. when the pain of something is too much but of course the cost of numbness is if you numb out the pain you're also numbing out the joy yeah i mean and that's that's sort of what numbness is i guess by definition is just that kind of flat middle line
0: yeah there there's a thing that we say when people come into our support group is the, the, there's good news and bad news. The, the good news is, is you're going to start to feel again, and the bad news is you're going to start to feel again.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. I actually just got goosebumps. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And I think what happens is the prediction about what feeling is going to be and past learning history, past experiences of how hard feeling has has been, there becomes You know, it's a fear. It's like a, it's a, it's a, um, almost like an emotional phobia, right? There's no specific Mm -hmm. stimulus or trigger, but it's just the fear of having intense feelings. But the predictions that our minds give us are there also to protect us, just like numbness, Mm -hmm. right? And so the mind is going to tell you to err on the side of caution, but it's often not accurate.
0: To err on the side of catastrophizing?
1: Yes, exactly. The, because if I fear the worst and I avoid anything that could go wrong, then I'm protecting myself from catastrophe. But, you know, of course, there's a huge cost to that because you also there's a lot of opportunity that's lost as well.
0: And would you kind of fit vulnerability under that umbrella?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Vulnerability is hard. The The word vulnerable, the root of the word is woundable. Oh, Right? I mean, isn't that Uh, interesting? So it's saying like that. It's not just a feeling. It's I'm opening myself up to potentially be wounded. Uh And human beings are designed to avoid being wounded. So it makes sense that we, you know, dive for the comfort zone. But there are huge costs. It's hard to live a big life where you really feel alive if you're always protecting yourself from vulnerability or potential catastrophe that probably isn't going to happen.
0: Is that a vestige of our caveman brain?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When you get a, let's say a couple coming in to see you and they, I don't know if you see couples or not, but this is hypothetical. uh, And they're struggling with intimacy. What are, what are the first things that you look to address? I
1: don't actually see couples. Okay. So one of the holes in my, I don't see couples. I don't see kids. Um, And then there's a couple kind of specific types of problems that I don't see, but it's a real I feel like it's a real hole in my training because individuals come in. As part of a couple, most of the time, right right, or they have kids or they were a kid, uh, mm-hmm. so I wish I did have that training, but i don 't but is there what are you getting at with the question because I can probably still answer it related to
0: what are what are some of the general. ways to begin to address somebody 's difficulty with intimacy? you know that they talk about that dance uh, with the love addict love avoidant where They're turned on by somebody who has, you know, uh, who is semi committed, you know, that Mm -hmm. distance uh, they find safe and intoxicating. But when that person turns around and comes towards them, obviously metaphorically, they feel suffocated and they want to they want to leave.
1: So if I'm working with an individual who's describing that really anything an individual is describing to me, the first thing I'm thinking about is what is the function of the behavior? So here are the things I want to know. What is the pain? emotionally, physically, whatever it is, what's going on inside your skin that you find difficult or uncomfortable. Um, When that shows up, what do you do? Or what do you not do? And so one example is I run for the hills in relationships as soon as I feel Mm -hmm. vulnerable, right? So the the pain is vulnerability, self doubt, maybe fear that this Mm -hmm. person will leave. Or that if they really know me, they won't like what they see, Mm -hmm. right? So fear, vulnerability, those are the pain. What shows up is the behavior. I run for the hills, I shut down, I lash out, whatever it may be. And then what is the function of that? So what does it get you? And, you know, like in the book, I say it works or we wouldn't do it. And you can look at anything you do or don't do and see that it gets you something, at least in the short term, right? So like, Mm -hmm. for example procrastination is always a good example because everyone's procrastinated at some point in their life. I have some aversive task. I'm feeling dread. I don't feel like doing it. In the, we all know procrastination is quote unquote bad, right? But in the moment I give myself permission to put it off till tomorrow, yeah. what do I get? Relief, yeah. right? But now tomorrow I have the same amount to do and less time to do it. So that dread and anxiety that I was avoiding is now higher. So with this example with intimacy, I want to know what are you doing and then what does it get you? And so that person that is moving away Mm -hmm. um, is now feeling more secure, kind of shored up, right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel more impenetrable to being wounded because I've shut down that vulnerability. They feel like
0: they're back in control. Back
1: in control. Yes. Excellent way to put it. And so now that we understand what you get, which is basically why you do it, like we don't need to dig through your entire past and what happened with your mother or father or babysitter Mm -hmm. or whomever. We just need to know why you do it today, right? Not that there's not use in knowing those things, but. And then what's the cost? So when you, you know, run for the hills, what are you missing out on? And specifically, when you look at your values, like, What you want to be about in life, what kind of life you want to live, is this behavior that's making you feel comfortable in the short term, is it moving you toward that thing? Is it in service of that thing or the opposite of that? And then typically, what we see is like this pain that people like come to therapy. I, I need you to help me not feel fear or panic or whatever it is. It's not the pain that's the problem. It's all the stuff you're doing to try to push it away, numb it, avoid it. It's that's all about really tools. what's keeping it's you stuck. All about stuff. tools. Yeah. It's
0: all about upgrading the the tools. It, yeah. It's it's amazing. In in the seventeen years that I've been going to support groups, I thought. So much of it was going to be, I'm going to become more to mm-hmm. cope with life better. And it actually turns out I just had to let parts of myself go that I thought I needed to have to survive, that I needed to impress people or I needed to, you know, have a certain amount of money or whatever. And once I was able to let th- those ideas go, mm-hmm. suddenly I was able to be more present. Totally. Suddenly... um my morals were more in line with who I wanted to be because I wasn't making decisions out of fear.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you're really pointing an arrow toward values. There's this exercise I love doing um, that originated with a psychologist named Kelly Wilson. It's called The Sweet Spot. Um, And it's about, you know, so much of, I'm sure when you go to a support group or therapy, there's so much focus on pathology and what's wrong and what are Mm -hmm. the symptoms and where are you stuck. And this kind of does a 180 and it's think about a moment where you knew sweetness, where like maybe all the pain went away, even just for a few seconds and you were really present and tell me about that moment. And you know, it's a whole exercise of really getting in touch with that, but tell me about that moment. And it is my favorite thing to do with people because what I notice is that a hundred percent of the time so far, a hundred percent of the time, the answers have been about connection in some way. They've been about connection with people, pets, nature. Sometimes it's about like overcoming some obstacle. But even when that happens, it usually ends up boiling down to this marathon I did with my friends, you know, and you know what never shows up.
0: Gifts that you were given by somebody.
1: Oh, yes. And all the things you just mentioned a minute ago. No one ever talks about, like, it was the first day I got in my new BMW and smelled that new car smell. Not that there's anything wrong with loving your car. Like, I think my husband loves his car more than he loves his family sometimes. And it's fine to love your car. But I just think it's interesting that when you really – Get in touch with the sweet moments. It's never that. It's never a raise. It's never a promotion. All these things that culturally and society, societally we think we're supposed to care about and mm-hmm. strive for, they don't show up when we drop into those sweet moments where we're present and alive. So Isn't true. that interesting?
0: It is. It is interesting.
1: And it okay. always makes me feel this just immense love for humankind mm-hmm. i think sometimes when i do that exercise it's half selfish yeah. in that like it always makes me feel good about humans whenever yeah. i do it yeah. which can be hard to do in today's world give sometimes. me give me a moment
0: from from your life give me a sweet moment from your life if you can uh, if you can recall one
1: oh a hundred percent i can um so, and I think I even write about this one in the book because I recall it a lot. It it kind of keeps me going sometimes when things mm-hmm. are tough. Um, there was a moment where I was coming home from my office. It was dark. It had been a very long day. I was exhausted. And, you know, I had bags on my shoulders that were heavy. And when you walk in my house, there's a really long um, like hallway that you have to walk down to get to the family room. It's just an oddly designed house. And when I walked in, all of a sudden, my two kids, who are now six and eight, but this was probably a year ago, they just both scream, Mommy! And they come running down the hall, and I have two French bulldogs, so they're hot on their tails. And all four of them are just bolting toward me. My kids have these like expressions of joy and excitement and everyone's just hugging me. And it was like this puddle of love. And I'm sure that probably within 30 seconds, my kids were fighting. Right. Right. And like everything's probably erupting into chaos. And but in that one moment, it was all sweetness and presence and love and things Oh, I'm getting choked up thinking about it, like things that really matter. and you know, I think right now, more than ever, there there's this metaphor that a colleague of mine um, brought up to me recently that I've just loved, and he says, people always say when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, but you can't make lemonade without any sugar, right? And sometimes the best you can do is try not to squirt the juice in your eye. and he was talking about kind of this place we're in right now with this pandemic mm. and everything else. And I thought and I loved that metaphor and then I thought, but you know what? I think there are ways to find little grains of sugar throughout our day. I
0: completely agree.
1: Right, even that's... in the midst of this crazy time. And and those sweet spots, that example like that's a grain of sugar. Mm. But if you're not present and you're not showing up and paying attention, then like you're missing out on that opportunity to take that the lemons and try to make some lemonade. Does that make yeah. sense? It
0: makes a- absolute yeah. sense. And I think it, for many of us who have struggled to find consistent joy, or even peace, uh, or even minor comfort in our lives, a, a reprieve from the anxiety or the emptiness or whatever it is that we're struggling with, we tend to live in the future of We'll pick some moment in the future that we think is going to bring that to us, and then we're just waiting for that moment to happen, and we miss all the little beautiful things along the way, because we don't believe that we have the elements in our life currently to bring us that. But it's letting go of the idea of what the future is going to look like. And this is where I think spirituality uh, comes into it, because there is a... I'm sure as you know, a need to let go of preconceived notions of what the universe expanding looks like, Mm. of of what our lives unfolding looks like, of how we handle quote-unquote mistakes, all of those things. Um, Letting go of my preconceived notions of how those could all be labeled uh, suddenly allowed me to be able to feel peace sitting in the backyard in the hammock with my dog on my chest and not thinking about, you know, am I going to have enough money to retire?
1: Yeah. And I think there's a lot in there. You know, I think one of the things you're pointing to is that's related to spirituality is people who are spiritual. I mean, by definition, spirituality involves uncertainty, right? It's kind of this like trust that there is something bigger out there than yourself, but you can't really wrap your head around it and understand it. And a difficulty tolerating uncertainty is one of the hallmarks of anxiety. And as humans, you know, going back to the cave person thing, there was a survival advantage to avoiding ambiguity, Mm -hmm. in cave person days and an even greater advantage if you figured out what some vague figure was in the distance, you know, if you knew whether that was a killer animal or a source of food, you know, you're not only going to die, you're sorry, you're not only not going to die, but you're also not going to miss your meal. Right. And so, you know, we've evolved to avoid uncertainty. And I think in maybe the last 10 to 20 years with technology, um, our ability to practice tolerating uncertainty has diminished, right? If you want to know the answer to any question at any moment, you can ask Siri or you can ask Alexa. Um, You can look up Amazon reviews or Yelp reviews. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like you almost never have to take a chance on anything anymore. And so I think one of the things you're speaking to is, is being able to make space for uncertainty, that you can sit in your hammock and be present not knowing what the next five minutes or five days or five years is going to bring. Mm -hmm. And I think that ability is critical to being able, if you have anxiety in your life, which most of us do at some point, um, that ability is critical to being able to, to live with anxiety. That's
0: such a great point, because I used to think that finding comfort with an unresolved problem meant that I didn't care about the problem or that I wasn't going to do anything about it. And it's such a black and white way of looking at things that I either obsess about it and think about nothing else until it's gone, Mm -hmm. or I ignore it and my life falls to shit.
1: Mm, Yeah, right. And to be able to be a little more sensitive and discerning about those things you know if i look at this thought about this problem uh first of all is it anything i can solve right now is there do i have the power to change this in some way and if the answer is yes great do some problem solving Mm -hmm. but if the answer is no then the only thing to do is to be able to sit in that uncertainty and we're not good at it you know Mm -hmm. I, i always think the best example is the uh, you know you have some vague symptom you're you've been more tired or you're having headaches or you've got a rash on your skin. There's uncertainty there. There's mm-hmm. a lack of perceived control, which is one of the other things that drives mm-hmm. anxiety. And so, what do people do? Do they just sit in that? Or do you they...
0: convince yourself that it's cancer, and, and then, then you, you what watch do you do? Netflix. Then I watch Netflix for <laughs> twenty eight hours in a right, row, right?
1: So to avoid the thought, right. Or you get on WebMD. Right. Like right. that's what most people do. They go to Dr. Google and type in, I've been feeling tired. And then next thing you know, you have, that's what convinces you have cancer. Right. It's not even the symptom. Usually right. your mind does it for you, but for a lot of people, it's the internet that that thing that you thought might be cancer, you're now convinced is cancer. So that behavior that was meant to make you feel more certain and more in control has actually done the exact opposite.
0: We should we should have celebration parties for hypochondriacs uh, when they realize they don't have what they thought they have. (laughs) Just little tiny ones, little get-togethers to celebrate. You know, the rash isn't going to kill me, or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, Talk about the different types of anxiety. Mm. In your book, you say that there's five. Kind of I, categories?
1: Yeah, I don't know what the technical number in the DSM-5 is right now, right. but the main ones are panic disorder, agoraphobia, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder or social phobia, specific phobia. I think that's all of those. And then there's post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and illness anxiety disorder that Um, You know, illness anxiety has anxiety in the title, but is technically a somatoform disorder. And then the other two are now like kind of in their own categories, like in a trauma category and in a um, compulsive behavior kind of category. But they used to be anxiety disorders and they still have anxiety as a hallmark. So those are all kind of included. Do you want me to talk about the symptoms of all of those? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, let's see where to start. We'll start with specific phobia because that's the easiest. Mm -hmm. And that's just a fear of any specific um, situation or stimulus. So this is where you see spiders and spaces, heights, that kind of thing.
0: And what would be the difference between somebody who uh, is afraid of spiders like they gross them out and somebody who has true arachnophobia?
1: That's a great question. So, and this is going to be the answer to like, when does it count or not for all of these different categories? And it really boils down to, Interference. So lots of people hate spiders, but it doesn't affect their life in any way. Um, when it becomes a true clinically significant phobia is when it's getting in when the way. When you're thinking
0: about spiders at the restaurant and, you know, I wonder if spiders got into my food or... Are there spiders under this table and you're missing out?
1: Yeah, sorry. There are things you can't do. You know, all your friends are going camping and you can't go, even though that's really being with them is really important to you. But you can't go because you're afraid of spiders. Actually, I'll give you a good example of a patient I had a very long time ago um, who came in for spider phobia specifically and had been lived. I mean, I don't know. She was probably 30 when I saw her and it had never really interfered with her life. And then she became a mom. And she was going through these like little kid um, uh, flashcards, you know, picture cards. Mm -hmm. And there was a cartoon picture of a spider and she chucked it across the room and screamed bloody murder. And in that moment, she was like, oh, no, I cannot pass this on to my children. Too late. I need to go get therapy. (laughs) Right.
0: Good for her, though, man.
1: Right. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And by the end of therapy, she was literally playing with a tarantula. So it was a good success story.
0: And it bit her and she died. But the progress she made prior to her death was so heartwarming.
1: (laughs) Well, we were doing so the the gold standard treatment for anxiety disorders, phobic types of anxiety disorders specifically is exposure therapy. Right. So it's facing your fear, not facing something. You know, I wouldn't have had her play with a black widow. Right. Right? But tarantulas are actually fairly safe. The worst part about that is I got in trouble by Petco because to get a tarantula, I had to go buy it from the pet store. But nobody wanted to keep it as a pet. So then I returned it and Mm. the people at the pet store yelled at me and were like, we are not in the business of renting animals here. And of course, I realized the mistake after the fact. I was just trying to help, but I hadn't really... Fought that part, oh. that part of it all the way through. So that was the last time I went and got a tarantula yeah. from Petco or Petsmart or wherever. I hope it was. N-
0: none of your clients are afraid of elephants. That would that would be inconvenient.
1: Yeah, that we would we would uh, need a much bigger office to be able yeah. to do that exposure. But to that point, we actually do most of our exposures out of the office. Mm. You know, I would meet that person at the San Diego Zoo if they had a phobia right. of elephants. It's my favorite part of my job because it's where you get to be really creative. I really only see anxiety. Mm -hmm. So you could think, like, doesn't that get boring seeing the same type of problem over and over? But exposure is where you get to be really creative. And, like, how can I design a treatment for you Mm -hmm. that's going to really target these specific fears? And then you
0: get to be their ally right there, you know, figuratively holding their hand during – such an intense and important time. That's got to be an amazing feeling.
1: It's an amazing feeling because it works. You know, I I remember I had one patient who had a fear of driving and we were out doing a driving exposure. And in San Diego, I live in San Diego, it never rains, right? We're in Southern California. It never rains. And when you do exposure therapy, you know, you start with easy stuff typically and work your way up. You don't need to do that, but it's just you get more buy-in from people that way. Mm And we were early on in the treatment. We weren't at driving in the rain yet, right? Not only did it unexpectedly start raining, but a cop comes behind us with lights and sirens blazing, (laughs) not pulling us over. But you know that automatic fear you have when you see those lights twirling? And she starts crying, and she says... I hate you. No, wait, let me back up. What I said to her, I was sort of joking with her, like, oh, I dialed this up special for you. I called Mother Nature. I got in touch with the SDPD. And she's crying. She's saying, I hate you. You're so mean. And at the end of that exposure, she was crying happy tears, saying, I never in a million years thought that I would ever have been able to do that. And that's what happens all the time. Like, you get to see people and their most triumphant, courageous moments. Isn't that cool?
0: That's really cool. Talk about agoraphobia.
1: So agoraphobia is um, it is fear or avoidance of any situation where you might have a panic attack or panic symptoms And not be able to escape or get help. So most people, when they think of agoraphobia, think of like that old movie Copycat, where Susan Sarandon, I think it's Susan Sarandon, Susan Sarandon is trapped in her house and cannot leave. And that's only agoraphobia at its most extreme level. Most people with agoraphobia aren't at that level. Um, and so it's the person who the, the typical situations that are agoraphobic situations are things like traffic, crowds, elevators, you know, enclosed spaces, planes, anywhere where you might have some kind of symptom and then essentially be trapped. So that can sometimes be difficult to tease apart from claustrophobia, mm-hmm. which is also a fear of enclosed places, right. but they're a little bit different. One is the fear of the physical symptoms, that's the agoraphobia, and the other one is the feeling of being trapped, the fear of what will happen if you're trapped and can't escape
0: is it fair to say that agoraphobia is uh, similar in many ways to uh, social anxiety disorder um, because the 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 fear is. That there's going to be people involved in there and there's going to be discomfort or, or do they have nothing to do with each other?
1: They can have some similarities. So social anxiety, the fear is really about having a performance failure. So if you are with one or more people, so this could be you and I having a one on one conversation mm-hmm. or me giving a speech to 100000 people or anything in between. It's any social situation with one or more people where you might have some kind of performance failure and that's gonna lead to embarrassment or humiliation or negative evaluation by others. It's like that fear of negative evaluation. Mm -hmm. With agoraphobia um, or panic disorder where someone has recurrent unexpected panic attacks, um, there can be an element of it that is, I'm afraid I'll have a panic attack And then whatever I do while I'm panicking will lead to embarrassment. Mm. So it can overlap in that way. But... Other than that, you know, you. they're pretty different. Yeah.
0: Uh, talk about generalized anxiety disorder.
1: So generalized anxiety or GAD is excessive worry about a number of different things that is difficult to control and then comes with some physical symptoms. So things like um, trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, feeling that keyed up or on edge, like the heightened physiological anxiety. Um, what am I forgetting? Does it There's interfere with
0: more. someone's ability to have joy and, and be present?
1: It certainly can. Mm-hmm. I think that's the uncontrollable part: is you're yeah. worrying so much, and that it's hard to control. Um, you know, so even when you're doing something enjoyable, that worry can tend to find its way in. Gotcha. Um, but that's not a specific symptom like with depression, anhedonia, which is that inability to feel joy or have mm-hmm. have fun. Um, is a specific symptom of depression that isn't, you know, typical of GAD.
0: It's amazing how much overlap there there is. And it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because this stuff is so complicated and so many things share similarities, but maybe the root of them is different or the tool to cope with them is different. And, it, and so much of it is an art of just trying to parse out what is what, which animal is eating me.
1: Mm. I think the good news is the way our field is moving, you know, we're coming out of a place where there's a specific treatment for OCD and a specific treatment for depression, et cetera, et cetera. And the field is moving to a more process-based place where it's more about understanding the mechanisms that underlie all of these things. And that's good news because it means you don't have to understand exactly what's what. It's also sort of a false categorical system to believe that people have this or they don't have this, right? Right. We all have some level of these symptoms and they come and go. And I mean, that's another whole like complicated conversation for another day. But, um, you know, I think we're moving to a place where, so for me, the type of therapy that I do is acceptance and commitment therapy, which includes exposure that we were talking Mm -hmm. about. And this is a transdiagnostic therapy that whatever someone walks in with, you might meet criteria technically for GAD, for example. But if you come in saying I had a huge fight with my partner, you know, sometimes if you're so focused on I'm going to do this treatment for this disorder, then you can be like, oh, I don't, I don't really know what to do about this fight thing. But when you have a transdiagnostic treatment and you're really looking at. The function of behaviors, like we talked about before, mm-hmm. and the cost of those behaviors, then you kind of know how to address anything. It's like it. That walks it, it in. It gives room. you
0: the breadcrumbs to to go down the the right trail.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: What uh, was the other one? Um, there was one other one or two other ones that we were talking about anxiety related. Um, well,
1: we got. Pan- well, we didn't talk about panic disorder specifically, okay, talk, so okay. that so panic disorder is um, when a person has at least two so recurrent, unexpected or untriggered panic attacks. So if social situations are cueing panic attacks, that's not panic disorder. That's probably social phobia, right? Oh. So they are panic attacks that have come from out of the blue. Um, there's a fear of having attacks. So even when you're not feeling anxious, you're worried about having Mm -hmm. additional attacks. There's a change in behavior because of attacks. So maybe you stop drinking caffeine. Maybe you don't exercise or have sex because you're trying to avoid physical symptoms that make you feel panicky. Um, And
0: then that PTSD from sexual assault might, might be at play in there. Right. If it's, if it's happens during sex.
1: Right. So then there's like a whole different category of when people have post-traumatic stress disorder that was triggered by a trauma, they can also have panic attacks. Right. Right. Any of these anxiety disorders can be accompanied by panic attacks. And so one of the ways you're teasing that out is what triggers it. Right. 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 And so if it's just happening out of the blue, then it's most likely to be panic. Now, where that can get complicated is if you've had enough panic attacks In the same place, like on an airplane, Mm -hmm. in traffic, right? Then those situations do come to cue the panic, but it's technically still considered untriggered. Gotcha. So it's it's complicated. And I think, you know, I want to talk about OCD for a second because I think the one place – We're really knowing your stuff in terms of sussing out what's going on diagnostically. If I'm not 100% sure whether this is PTSD or GAD or panic, the treatment is generally going to be the same, Mm -hmm. right? But the one exception is a subtype of OCD that's harm OCD. And so this is where people have intrusive, unwanted, distressing images or impulses. I'm going to
0: throw this baby off a roof. I'm going to push that old man in front of the bus. You know, I'm going to slice my skin open.
1: That's yeah. it. That's we the get, one.
0: We get a lot of those in the surveys, uh, people, that and they have shame themselves so much. That's and right. They, and they think that they're that means they're going to to do it. And as you know, one of our previous guests who talks a lot about OCD said, she said, no, that means that it's in contrast with your values. That's right. And that's why. It's upsetting you so much.
1: That's it. It tells you exactly what you care about most. And unfortunately, a lot of people who end up in my office with harm OCD have been to other professionals who don't understand harm OCD who have hospitalized them. Oh, my God, you're suicidal. I have to call 911 and get you into the ER. That is so
0: fucked up. There's, There's some, I suppose, like any other profession, there's some really bad clinicians well, out and, there. and I
1: think it's, it's, it's a lack of understanding. And, you know, those of us in the OCD community are really trying to do a better job of getting the word out there. Yeah. And I want to appeal to, you know, anyone in your audience who's struggling with this kind of OCD to talk about it. You know, people hide it because they feel shame, but it is not uncommon and it is treatable. Yeah. You know, OCD responds to exposure and response prevention very, very well. But if you're hiding it because you feel ashamed, you can't get help. And, you know, the more people talk about it, the more it becomes known and understood Mm -hmm. that if you're having thoughts of drowning your baby, you're not homicidal and you don't. Nobody needs to call CPS. Right. Right. And unfortunately, that kind of thing has happened. And then it's traumatizing to people.
0: If you're having dark thoughts and they're arousing and you find yourself escalating your behavior. Then that, that is something to be concerned about. As much as I hate to bring this up, because um, I hate talking about stuff that has to do with animals and pain, but somebody in the five-mile radius of here has been killing and mutilating cats mm. and severing their heads and then leaving them on the lawn of the person that owned the cat. Oh, my God. And in my mind, I'm like, it's only a matter of time until this person wants to kill people.
1: Yeah, that's like one of the biggest, uh, uh, oh, my God, I'm like distracted just thinking about yeah. it. But that's one of the biz- biggest signals that someone is really quite ill and deranged and likely to cause harm to, yeah. to others. And that is the opposite of OCD, right. right? You know, And the way to know if someone's listening going, I don't know which one it is, you have it exactly right. If it's a fear that you're going to do it, that's more likely to be OCD. If it's a desire or a turn on mm-hmm. um you know, or you think about killing yourself and it fills you with relief, you know that's more in that depressed mm-hmm. s i kind of department versus oh my god, i'm terrified that i won't be able to control myself and will pick up this knife and stab myself. you know if it's a fear, then that's more likely to be o c d
0: was there another one that we missed?
1: I mean, we didn't talk about. PTSD and OCD and illness, anxiety specifically, but we've sort of touched on all of them a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Talk
0: about what you, what in your book, you, you call it the triumvirate.
1: Yes. So, so this is actually going back to what we were talking about with uncertainty. So there are three factors that tend to be strongly associated with anxiety, and it's a difficulty with a lack of perceived control. And interestingly, how much control a person actually has doesn't matter. So if you have control, but you perceive that you don't, this is a predictor of anxiety. And the opposite is true, too. If you have no control, but you think you do, then you won't have anxiety. So it's the perception that you don't have control. Um, a difficulty tolerating ambiguity or uncertainty. And then the third one we haven't mentioned is an overinflated sense of responsibility. So when those three things come together, like I have no control over what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. And it feels like this is all on me.
0: My God, you you just described codependency in so many ways, didn't you?
1: Ooh, I'd have to think about that. I was thinking, you know, where I think about it is in the whole pandemic scheme is like, of course, everyone's anxious right now, because those Mm -hmm. three things are so present, right?
0: We have no control. We don't know where it's going. And nothing's black and white.
1: Yeah, for codependency. So so codependency, like, I rely on you to rescue me, and you need to be a rescuer tell me how you see those things related to per- I, control and and uncertainty and response i see the responsibility one
0: right that that it's I don't want to think about my own pain, so I'm going to think that I can control your life by fixing your drinking, by, uh, monitoring when I can't control whether or not you desire to, to get sober or, or do this or do that. Yeah. Uh, it's up to me. If I don't keep you from drinking, it's my responsibility. Right. I'm the one that's going to keep you, uh, sober. I don't right. know. There was just a couple of things in there that, you know, again, I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes with,
1: no, no, I see no it.
0: background in, uh, you know, any kind of professional study in this. But uh, no, you know, your I think stuff. about this stuff a lot. Yeah,
1: no, you can tell, you know, your stuff. And I actually think you're right on and that what the codependent behaviors are, are, you know, the function of those behaviors may be to feel more in control and to reduce a sense of uncertainty yeah. and to kind of build that that need to to feel responsible right if i yeah. can if
0: i can be perfect enough dad won't come home drunk mm. and and yell
1: Right, and that always works out real well. <laughs> really well.
0: Really <laughs> well, and, and I'm not trying to say that uh, you know. Oh, this is actually that. I just when I see similarities between things, I always love to say, "Hey, might there be a connection there? Might yeah. there, might there be something to think about or to talk about more? Especially when I've got somebody uh, you know who who is a professional who has studied all of this yeah. stuff. I, this is my opportunity to kind of pick your brain, and you know hundred percent kind of uh... and
1: there's nothing i enjoy more than talking about this yeah. stuff <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so uh the triumvirate mm-hmm. so how how is that beneficial when you are educating somebody about anxiety somebody who's listening right now um what can they do with those three pieces of information
1: Well, I think as with anything, awareness is the very first. You can't change anything if you don't have awareness first. Now, it's not enough to just have awareness or insight, but it's step one. So I think if you look at any place where you tend to get really distressed look at what's going on or what was happening right before. Did you feel like you didn't have control? Did you feel, is there something that is uncertain here? Is there ambiguity? Is there a sense that this is on you? This is your responsibility. And there's a good chance you're going to find that the answer to at least two, if not all three of those is yes. And if that's the case, now you have some awareness like, ah, this is my trigger. You know, when these things show up, it triggers anxiety or whatever the, the distress is. Maybe
0: the the behavior and that person doesn't even feel the anxiety because they immediately go to, you know, the cookies or whatever it is that's numbing them out. So you can
1: start there. Like your very first question about like, what about when people don't even realize they're anxious? If you, if you have that, um, you know, it's called alexithymia. If it's really kind of at an extreme level, like where you're really out of touch with your feelings, you don't know what you're feeling. You can't label what you're feeling. Um, then what you can do is look at your behavior first you know what am i doing that i have a sense is incongruent with my values um that feels like it's unhealthy or compulsive eating's a great example you know drinking any of that kind of stuff and if i were to not do that how would i feel and then you kind of have a sense of what you're covering up um and when all that shows up Is there something going on around uncertainty, control, et cetera? You know, it's like a like a detective mission, but you can unpack it from anywhere. You know, you Mm -hmm. can kind of start anywhere if you're looking at thoughts, feelings, behaviors. But we're back to that function thing. Like, what are these behaviors getting you? You know, that helps to understand it. And then, you know, probably there's some effort to feel more in control to reduce that uncertainty. And if you can do that in a way that doesn't have a cost, that's fine, right? Like, so, I don't know, if you're stressed and anxious and you take a bubble bath, does that, that makes you feel better? No, you're a monster. (laughs) You are a
0: monster and you are a danger to just, you're probably the person that's killing the cats. So it's,
1: it's possible that too many baths could result in monster-esque consequences. And what I mean by that is if you're occasionally taking a bubble bath with some candles and it makes you feel better, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what gives you a sense of control and certainty, fine. But if you're taking three-hour bubble baths every night and it's the only three hours hours you would normally spend time with your children and you kind of care about parenting your children, well, now you've gone into mini-monster territory, Right. right? So it's not that doing stuff to feel better is bad, it's, is there a cost? So if you're getting on WebMD to get that sense of control, to get that greater certainty, but it's actually making you feel worse Mm -hmm. or it's taking you away from other things. I mean, I genuinely know people who have spent so much time doing internet searching Mm -hmm. that it's taking over some other parts of their life that they've, you know, they've now given up that, that matter to them. So it's always sort of looking at that, like if I'm eating, is there, is there anything wrong with enjoying a piece of pizza or a piece of cake? No, as long as you're doing it consciously mm-hmm. and it's not just this autopilot reactive need to feel better. And, you know, my doctor just told me I have diabetes, right? Like now you're not in a great place right. with it. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Is, is there anything else that you'd, uh, you'd like to share before, uh, before we go?
1: Oh, I should always prepare for that question because that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's always a typical ending question, and I very rarely have anything good and wise. Well, while you're thinking to about that,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna plug your book again. It's called "Be Mighty: A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance." Um, People can find uh, your, do you have a website?
1: I do. It's just my name, jillstoddard.com. Okay. And everything I do is there. I do, um, you know, for me, the reason I do podcast interviews is kind of made up my mission. I live acceptance and commitment therapy, and I credit it for having a pretty awesome life and, like, Mm. not a pain-free life. Life is very difficult. Mm. Um. And so I've sort of made it my mission to try to share it with as many people as I possibly can. But I recognize that not everyone's going to walk into a therapist's office, either because they don't want to or they don't have the resources. Um, And podcasts are free and books are cheap. I write a blog. Blogs are free. Um, So I have a bunch of resources on my website that's just, you know, trying to share this stuff with as many people as I can. And I think there is so much value in getting clear on, your values. So my last snippet that I'll share is, um, the way I like to think about this is like, who is the me that you want to be in this one moment? Cause all we have is this one, mm-hmm. right? I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, but I get to choose how I'm going to show up here in this moment with you. Right. And I can be open, authentic, vulnerable, or I can be shut down defensive, mm-hmm. right? Like who's the person I want to show up and And if you think about the word moment, the word me is right in the middle of it, Mm -hmm. right? So like, if you're trying to get in touch with your values, you can think about who's the me I want to be in this one moment, and me is right in the middle of moment, Yeah, and that that can be kind of a guidepost as you make choices throughout your day.
0: Something that I'll imagine sometimes when I'm having trouble feeling peace or joy or appreciation for my life is I'll try to imagine that I have just gotten off a desert island and how am I going to live today? And so I try to sometimes say, just live today like you mm-hmm. have just gotten off a desert island for two years by yourself. How, would you, how would you act?
1: Well, there's so much gratitude in there, right? Like yeah. Because if you've been on a deserted island, you've missed out on a lot and now right. you have this appreciation for what you c- can go do. Yeah. Right, that's sort of leading the way with that question,
0: Dr. Jill Stoddard. Thank you so much for uh, for coming and sharing such great insights on uh, anxiety and other other good stuff. I appreciate it.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Many, many. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, "What." When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Many thanks to her. I got an email from uh, a guy who calls himself Josh, and he asked a quite great question. He said, if drug addicts should never do drugs after rehabilitation and alcoholics probably ought to not try drinking in moderation again, then when is it ever okay or safe for a love addict to love again? And, you know, two, two programs that are very similar are the food program and the sex and or love addiction program because we need food and we need love. And I think in the programs, you know, that call themselves love addiction programs, I think the word love should be in quotes because it's not really true mature love. It's an idea of love that we become addicted to, that has nothing to do with intimacy, that has to do with distraction and usually repeating childhood trauma or abandonment. And so you you can love again. And in many ways, you will love for the first time because it is the first time you will, if you're a love addict or a sex addict, you will truly show up and be vulnerable and be responsible and sit through the feelings of discomfort as you get close to somebody. That that is love. Love is, to me, being willing to have a difficult argument with somebody or a disagreement. It doesn't have to necessarily, necessarily be an argument, but to sit down and communicate the things that you had been sweeping under the rug the rest of your life and then just burning that bridge or moving on to someone else that's that's not love and speaking of love this is from the love survey this person calls themselves sober except for coffee i love a natural pun that comes out in conversation and the other person gets it and laughs well i am not with you on that one but then again, that's probably the comedian in me. I love farting loud into a couch or chair cushion. I am with you on that one. And I love picking off the little green hats on cherry tomatoes. Oh, that's a great one. That's a great one, even though I hate cherry tomatoes. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Link. And he writes... One time my mom got pissed about something I did and all she had was one of those long freeze pops and the tough plastic. She came over and repeatedly whacked me in the head until it exploded everywhere. She thought it was so funny that she burst out laughing. I don't know if I thought it was funny or seeing her laugh gave me some relief, but I started laughing too. That is so fucked up. So fucked up. And I have to assume that your mom broke the green one because if she'd broke a grape or a cherry one, she'd have cried. She would have cried. How how do you how do you hit a kid over a head with something? I suppose when it was done to you, you, you just don't think about it, but. This is from the body shame survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself somatic. And he writes, I had a problem with bulimia nervosa when I was in my teen years. I still have some similar issues and I've turned the concept of purging into a fucked up safety blanket. I never do it, but I think of it as an escape valve when I see myself and feel myself eating too much. Um, they talk about, he talks about his ideal weight when he was 18 and desperately trying to get back there these days it's much more of a lost cause but i keep the hope that eventually i will figure out the correct combination of energy eating right and exercise to get me down there healthily thank you for that you know that is such a uh, such a minefield the idea of losing weight because why and and i'm in the process of trying to lose weight and you know i tell myself that it's just so that i have more energy and so that i feel better but there's a part of me that keeps checking in the mirror, is super happy when my pants are a little bit looser. And, uh, I know it's, it's causing my girlfriend a little bit of anxiety. I think she's afraid that I'm, I'm going to become obsessed with it. But, um, the extra energy that I have playing hockey has been amazing. And all I did was I cut out white flour and, and sugar. Uh, but, I can see how it could become addictive for for somebody. Um, this is from the Body Shame Survey filled out by a agender person who calls themselves Louis Anderson's Third Nipple. And to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? And they write, uh, I hate that my brain doesn't belong in my body. My body feels more like a vehicle I'm stuck in rather than who I am. I get compliments about my looks, but I feel dirty when I do because it feels like I'm keeping a shameful secret. If money were no problem, I would have my breasts surgically removed. I'd have my uterus removed. I'd keep my vagina. I wish I had the sculpted body of a man. I've given myself a name for the man I wish I was born as. I hate my breasts because they attract attention. I hate my breasts because they are pendulous, so I can't even buy cheap bras in cheap stores because of my size. I have to shop online for expensive-as-fuck sets. I hate my breasts because when I was 15, I started wearing a real bra to school and everyone noticed. People came up to me and talked to me about my breasts. Boys talked about them in locker rooms. I felt ashamed. I didn't. It didn't matter that I was one of the smartest kids in the school or was artistic with many of my pieces displayed on the hallways. No, the only time I was worth talking about is when my meat sacks were being supported properly to society's standards. I hate my arms because they are flabby and they tell the world that I can't physically defend myself. I hate my legs because they tell the world that I don't work out as often as I should be. And I hate my body because it tells the world that I'm okay with mediocrity and settle for what I'm given instead of striving for better. Thank you for that, man. You went deep. You went deep on that one. And I think there's a lot of people that feel exactly the same way you do. Your body is just an adversary. And it's such... it is. It is such an exhausting way to go through life. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves Nick the Prick. Uh, They are 19, identify as pansexual, were raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Uh, They write, there were multiple instances. Uh, My older female Second cousin forced herself onto me when I was very young, five years old to be exact. My older cousin's male did it so many times I lost count. My grandmother's ex-boyfriend raped me on Thanksgiving in 2012. This is the only case I reported. This also happens to be why I will never report a case again. My family tried to convince me that I lied. My mother told me to tell the doctors I lied and convince them I just needed more meds. Oh. The monthly checks didn't hurt either. Wow. Many people who have filled these surveys out and that I've talked to, who after being violated or raped or molested, went to their family and were told that they were making it up or nothing was done, have said that was more traumatic than the instance itself. They have also been physically and emotionally abused. Abused. My mother has a habit of letting her daddy issues blind her love life. Therefore, the controlling men she dated also controlled us. I have endured each and every one of them. I have also endured my mother herself, who is not only still dependent, but extremely manipulative. She never fails to make me feel like shit. So then the question is, unless you're financially dependent on her what do you get out of having a relationship with somebody that continues to hurt you and i'm just put i'm not trying to shame you i'm just putting that out there for thought because i it took me 20 years to answer that question in my life and to cut my mom out of my life and it was probably the hardest thing i ever did but it was the kindest thing I ever did for myself. Darkest thoughts, I replay each time I've been raped and thinking about killing all of them or screaming louder or enjoying it so it wouldn't pain me days to weeks after. Darkest secrets, I dated a much older man and had a kink focused relationship with him. It came tumbling down when my mother found out and slapped me for it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. There are multiple, most too awful to speak of, but the one that disgusts me most is the one that lets me get aroused best. I feel disgusting knowing that they all involve rape. It is such a common fantasy, and I've said this a thousand times on the podcast. It has nothing to do with what you want in actual life Our fantasies our brain's way of dealing with the things that make us nervous or cause us anxiety or related to trauma in the past and it's time to start being as long as you're not hurting anybody it's time to start being nice to yourself and starting and and start to start making friends with what your kinks are and it's complicated obviously you know if it's addictive you know you might want to Talk to somebody about it, um, but hating yourself for what turns you on is one of the biggest wastes of energy we can spend in our life. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Please let me go. Let me be. Just when I feel like I've let go and forgotten or forgiven my abusers, they pop back up in my life. That has to be so... So painful. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wouldn't have had such a combination of shit going through my head and focused in school more. I wish I would have gone to college. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm convinced they'd think the same of me as I think of myself, that I'm a sick, sick individual. How do you feel after writing the these things down? Sick, gross, yet relieved. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I'm sorry. Tell somebody. If you go to therapy, actually speak. Thank you for that, man. You got a lot on your plate, a lot of painful, painful stuff, and um, I really, I really hope that you open up to either a therapist or a support group so you can start getting the compassion and the help and the and the healing that that you deserve. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by a person who calls themselves Stop Trying to Eat the Alphabet. We Need Letters for Science. And they right. I love it when I play the guitar and I feel the vibration of the chord being played in the body of the guitar and the strings on my fingers. That is a great one. I love when somebody's playing a guitar through an amp and it's not distorted at all and it almost, some of the notes are so chimey, it almost sounds like little bells. I love listening to the different kinds of birds sing. I fucking love hammocks. There should be a bar where there are hammocks and a movie. That that is a great idea. Uh, And I love not having kids. That's a good one. That is a good one. Thank you for those. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by... uh, woman who calls herself i am sitting in a waiting room that does suck she writes i hate my fat ass and small breasts i'm built like a fucking mountain thanks mom i look at women who strive for big asses and can't believe it after all the struggles i've had with trying to fit into clothes why in god's name question mark thank you for that same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself large and almost in charge and he writes uh what do you to the question what do you like or dislike about your body and why it's humiliating that after 40 years of various comments insults and abuse i still get ridiculed for being large i literally just got home from having an insult hurled at me from another brave asshole in a moving car one day I will chase down one of these little twats and teach them a lesson. So be warned if you're the type that does this shit even just for fun. It's it's I I have been guilty when I'm playing hockey of going after the first obvious thing that I see on somebody. You know, if If we're in a fight or they do something really shitty, and I just get into that place of fear and rage, Uh, you know, if the if they're bald, you know, I'll call them a bald fucker. If they're big, I'll call them a fat fucker. I've been called a fat fuck when I got into it on the ice with somebody. Um, I went after one guy's cologne and jewelry, and I'm ashamed that, that that I do that. But my, I guess there shouldn't be a but. Um I'll just say that when I'm in that place I look at it afterwards and I say why did I feel the need to do that or say that and it's like this adrenaline just takes over and makes the decision to say something but I've gotten better at it but it's it's you know when your adrenaline is pumping what you do and how you conduct yourself when your adrenaline, is pumping is a real barometer of, of where you are at emotionally and, and spiritually in your, in your life. I've said a lot of prayers in the penalty box. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself a thespian mess. And about her depression, she writes, major depression. Sounds like a video game boss characters Character. I never thought about that major depression. Major depression reports to Colonel Dredd, who then reports to General Anxiety Disorder, uh, about her depression. Like there's lead cotton stuck in my lungs and a 60-pound blanket swaddled around my shoulders. Oh, that is a good one. And uh, she's a teenager. She's between 10 and 15. This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself TLC. And about his anxiety, he writes, I would rather do nothing than risk being judged. Oh, oh my God. So relate to that one. I've been playing so much Civilization V. And just sitting down and starting another game and, go, and and just saying to myself, why are you doing this? There are so many productive things you could be doing. But just the idea of, of not doing them right or that it's going to exhaust me, I would just rather just escape. Rather escape and just and get to invade some city. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself um, Unpleasantville. She identifies as straight. She's 18. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I've uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, and I can tell you it counts. Um, I've never been completely sexually abused, but I have been harassed by my stepdad throughout my childhood. That that Let me just say the stuff that I'm about to read that he says to you, he would you would be removed from the home by child services or he would be removed from the home because it is considered sexual abuse. Um, He would make mmm noises at me and would say things like masturbation station when I would say I was going to take a shower. Oh, that is so fucked up. He never did any of these when my mom was around. One time I was wearing a dress and walking up the stairs and he made the mmm noise. I got so mad and cried and told my mom, but she said that she wouldn't do that and if anything else happened, shit would hit the fan. Oh, but she said... That he, yeah, that he wouldn't do that, and if anything else happened, shit would hit the fan. Well, if he didn't do it, then why would she say, if anything else happened? I love how, how spouses will just let their partner off the hook because they don't want to deal with it, and they just throw their kid under the bus. It makes me mad that she basically told me off and didn't care when I didn't even feel comfortable in my own home. I'm 18 now and he hasn't said anything in probably the past few years, but I still feel uncomfortable around him. She's been emotionally abused. Uh, And then about physical abuse, I wouldn't say I was physically abused, but I got spanked and slapped in the face and mouth quite a lot as a kid. That's physical abuse. I think the emotional unavailability of my, I don't know why that was such a hard word to say, unavailability of my parents are by far worse than that. My mom and stepdad were very manipulative. They made me always feel like what I said didn't matter and would literally say that. My mom would often cheat on my stepdad or say that she was, quote, leaving and would leave me and my three other siblings with my stepdad. She would go on partying binges for about a month, and then when she ran out of money or after all of us begged her to come back, she would. At one point, I lived in a motel for a couple of weeks with no toothbrush or cloths because she would go back to the house to get my stuff. I would go with her most of the time while my siblings stayed at home because my stepdad didn't have have custody and my real dad wasn't present. My dad and stepmom were abusive as well. My dad was very absent most of the time, but when I saw him, my now ex-stepmom was very mentally abusive. At this point in my life, I realized how much of that shit fucked me up, and I have a lot of resentment for each of my parents. Wow, that is a lot of shit for anybody to go through. I mean, just abandoned everywhere. I mean, the world must feel so unsafe to you. Any positive experiences? Of course, it makes it hard to even call what I've gone through abuse because it was good 75% of the time, but I'm very stuck on the bad uh, nowadays. It's hard to let things go that affected me so strongly. Also, my mom is basically my best friend and is always there for me despite our constant arguing. You know, that to me is not a best friend. Best friends typically don't constantly argue with each other. And best friends typically will apologize when they've hurt somebody else. So while that might be on the scale of what you've experienced in terms of friendship towards the top, it goes a lot higher than that. And I think you're mistaking crumbs for a banquet. And you deserve better. Uh, she has been slightly manipulative, making me feel bad for how she has been effect- how she has affected me, but I know she has lots of mental problems herself, same with my stepdad and real dad. and those are not excuses for you to begin to have compassion for yourself and to move away from situations that are toxic and where no change is happening. Darkest thoughts. There are many occasions when my mom has cheated that when I'm very mad at her, I want to tell my stepdad that he doesn't know about. The most recent, two years ago, the man she emotionally cheated on my stepdad with was an ex-friend of his. But get this fucked up shit. He was in prison for 15 years for planning and attempting to murder his baby mama. She then went with my stepdad to a party to see him after he got out of prison, My stepdad didn't know then and still doesn't. This is like an episode of Cops. And it's so easy, I think, when people are raised in chaos and it's their normal to minimize it. Uh, It would be so great if you could take a break from your family and process this with a therapist or a support group or close friends and begin And and get a template for what healthy relationships and safety and intimacy feel like. It's a long-ass process, though, I can tell you. What are your darkest secrets? My darkest secrets are probably my mental illnesses. I've yet to tell almost anyone about my OCD, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and various forms of eating disorders. My mom and stepdad obviously know about my OCD, anxiety, and PTSD. My PTSD is actually from physically being in a tornado along with my siblings and mom and stepdad. Uh, We all have problems with that. My other members of my family recently got to experience my anxiety, OCD, and PTSD when I went on a trip to California with them. I had an absolute mental breakdown on the way back right before getting on the plane. I blacked out. Uh, I don't remember, but I was screaming and crying and they dragged me on the plane. That is one of the only times people around me have caught a glimpse into my mental illnesses. Oh man, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I just want to tell people how I feel. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that my family would show respect for my mental illnesses and not just tell me to get over it or put, put your big girl panties on. I also wish for an emotional relationship with someone before I go crazy. I think getting all of this trauma process before you get into a relationship will be huge because if you don't process this, It's going to affect the person that you choose, and you're going to choose somebody who feels familiar, i.e., somebody with drama. And when people tell you to get over it or put your big girl panties on, tell them to fuck right off. Right off. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel better. I feel like something... uh, I got something off my chest, like typing it, I can move on. I don't have anyone in my life to talk to about this stuff, and just typing it has been good. Uh, there is an online community uh, with a huge number of uh, support groups. Uh, it's called In The Rooms, and it's either .com or .org. I forget which one, but that can be a great way to get peer support around a huge number of addictions or issues. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. I would like to say sorry to someone who shares my experiences, and I would like to listen to them because I know what it's like to not have anyone listening to you. Thank you so much for that. And there are a few things as shitty as going through the world, feeling invisible, feeling unheard, unseen, invalidated, worthless, worthless. It's such a gnawing, scary feeling, and it it drives the bus on the way we conduct ourselves if we're not aware of it. Uh, this is from the Love Survey filled out by Ampersand. And they write, waking up, at five, uh, waking up at 5 a.m. before the world is awake and seeing the beginning of the light from the sun come in through the windows. It made me feel that all the comparisons I made towards other people that seemed more successful to me were irrelevant, and I was ahead of them now since I was awake and ready for a day of progress towards defeating codependency. I get the part about feeling awesome, being up so early even though I don't know if I've ever felt awesome being up early but that feeling like oh I didn't sleep in I'm not a lazy piece of shit but I think I think we still need to see that part of our brain that's telling us we're in competition with other people seeing that as the, the unhelpful voice that it is rather than giving into it and trying to change our lives so that we do better in the rat race and then finally uh, this is from the love survey and uh, such a sweet simple one filled out by Emily and she writes getting an unprompted out of nowhere I love you from one of my preschool students kids are so fucking cute at that age whatever the age is until they start talking back This is probably about what 4th grade, 5th grade, 6th grade Anyway, I'll find out. I'll do some research about it, and I'll get you some hard numbers for, for next week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and uh, I, I hope you're you're hanging in there in this fucked-up groundhog day of a pandemic and political catastrophe of hopelessness that we find ourselves in and just uh just know that you are you are not alone and if you need me i'll be i'll be playing civilization uh, at 4 in the morning thanks for listening
1: everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful fucked up I know in some is weird ways bizarrely way. beautifully everybody fucked up, in some, really weird bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. <laughs>